Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. So we will now have a Dharma talk by Anne Vittel, who has practiced for quite a few years. Two of her teachers were Dharma heirs of Soen Nakagawa Roshi. First, Kudo Nakagawa Roshi, with whom she began at Soho Zendo in 1985, and then Edo Shimano Roshi. And she has been uh, really involving herself more deeply than ever in her Zen practice, and will be doing folk essay at Daibosatsu Zendo. So I welcome Anne to speak to us this evening. Hello, everyone. So today we're celebrating Mandala Day. And as you know, Mandala Day was the inspiration of Soen Roshi. He so much wanted to meet Nyogen Senzaki in person, but they were physically isolated from each other for many years, despite their deep spiritual connection. Soen Roshi in Japan and Nyogen Senzaki in America. So since they could not meet in person, they agreed to sit Zazen and to chant, each on their own, but at the same time and on the same day every month. And this is our continuing tradition. Nyogen Senzaki worked tirelessly and mostly anonymously to bring Zen to America. It took time and the right circumstances for his efforts to begin to bear fruit. Soen Roshi was finally able to come here and his students also, including Edo Roshi, who with Soen Roshi established New York Zendo in New York City and later Daibosatsu Monastery in the Catskill Mountains of upstate New York. The interconnectedness of things is astonishing sometimes. One summer years ago, I was in the Barnes and Noble on Fifth Avenue and 18th Street in Manhattan. And somehow I found myself standing in front of the Eastern philosophy section. I had never thought much about Buddhism and I had never heard of Zen. So there was this tall set of bookshelves built on a pillar there at the front of the store and I found myself drawn to a thin, humble little book called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. And so this is what it would have looked like on this rather large bookshelf. And this is the cover of it. I hope you can see it on my screen. It's, it's backwards. <laughs> and standing and reading some of it there in the aisle, I became so happy and I was surprised by what I read and I thought, wow, this is it. This feels just right. 
So I bought the book. And that same summer, I went searching for a teacher and began Zen practice. I was 17 at the time. So the cover of the book and the title page inside both indicate that its contents were compiled by Paul Reps. But if one goes a bit farther in and looks more closely, one discovers that these compilations were mostly of the work of Nyogen Senzaki. So through this book, Senzaki Sensei actually gave me my first taste of Zen and changed my life. Then, as it happened, my first Zen teachers were students of Soen Roshi. I didn't find out about these connections until much later, actually. My first teacher was Nakagawa Roshi at the Soho Zendo. He taught me literally the physical posture for Zazen. His Zendo was in a Soho loft, which was completely empty with white walls and black cushions just straight on the floor. And there was this long hallway leading to the Zendo. And he himself sat on the floor just to the inside of the entrance to the Zendo. And at first you couldn't see him there. So I remember the first time I went there, I thought the room was empty and I felt very confused. And as I remember it, there was no central altar, just a table next to him with flowers and incense. I was so nervous I could barely ring the bell downstairs, which just said, Nakagawa, Zen. <laughs> and I was the only person there the first few times I went on beginner's nights. So that made me feel even more shy and awkward. Then Nakagawa Roshi left New York to go teach in Israel. And after that, he returned to Japan. So for a long while, I had no teacher, but I kept hoping. Then I saw an ad in the New York Times for a Zen art sale and found myself at New York Zendo, where I met Edo Roshi and was again able to study with a teacher. I met my future husband at New York Zendo. This month, our son turned 18. And now I have again been able to reunite with formal Zen practice after many years. And I'm very grateful to Shinge Roshi for accepting me as a student. At the end of next week, I will go to Daibosatsu for three months. So all of this, a whole life really, because I found a little book quietly hiding in a crowded busy bookstore so long ago. And because the Zen pioneers Nyogen Senzaki and Soen Roshi created the opportunity for me to find teachers. I am so very grateful to them and the mandala they created together. I thought I would tell you about a drama which played out at our house a few weeks ago. One morning, I was going out to our backyard and my arms were filled with this long bulky stalk of a plant I had dried and wanted to harvest the leaves from. It was like the size of a corn stalk. So I was maneuvering it out the door and I couldn't see my feet at all. 
And when I stepped out onto our little deck, all of a sudden there was this really loud squeaking at my feet. And I screamed and I threw what I was carrying into some potted plants and ran away down the steps. So of course my husband and son came out to see what was going on. And I told them there must be a mouse somewhere on the deck. So they looked all around, but they couldn't find any mouse. What they did find though, was a small bird hiding in one of my husband's shoes on the deck. My son immediately became very interested. The little bird was bright greenish yellow with gray wings and tail. And my son said this was probably an escaped pet parakeet. It would never last on its own in the wild, so we should rescue it, he said. So we went through a lot of different ideas to help the little bird. Could it fly? Was it hurt? Was it hungry, thirsty? And we brought it, still in the shoe, into a big screen tent where it hopped about while we tried to figure out what to do. And once it was comfortable, it sang this incredible short little song, so beautiful and not really describable, just these pure notes, and then opened its mouth wide in silence for food, but we didn't know what to feed it. So when I heard squeaking and couldn't see what was going on, somehow I assumed a mouse. And when my son saw a brightly colored bird, he immediately thought, oh, a pet parakeet. And everything that came after was us trying hard to figure out what to do, how to help. And after a busy time searching the internet, we worked out that it was probably actually a female scarlet tanager fledgling. Female scarlet tanagers are not red like the males, but greenish yellow like our bird. And as those of you who know about wild birds are already aware, it turns out that the best thing we could have done originally was nothing. We should have left her where she was. Fledglings can't fly, but they jump out of the nest anyway. For a scarlet tanager, that can mean a drop of about 50 feet. So then after that, for about two weeks until they can fly, the parents bring food to them on the ground. This bird probably jumped out of the tree just above our deck fell pretty far and shortly thereafterward had to deal with me stepping out the door. So we decided to rewind the situation back to what it had been. We encouraged the little bird to hop back into the shoe. We put the shoe back on the deck where it was and we left it there and we went away. But my husband sat there at the glass sliding door and so he saw what happened next. She hopped out of the shoe, off the deck, through our gate, and off into the woods. And that's the last we saw of her. We, of course, have been wondering about her and hoping she is okay ever since. The Zen monk Ryokan wrote this poem. 
I seem to hear your voice in the song of the cuckoo. In the mountains, another day passes. Yokan was a very unusual person. Maybe you're already familiar with him. There are a lot of stories about Ryokan and his almost childlike way of living completely in the moment. He lived very simply in a little hut in the mountains of Japan and was known for his kind and open-hearted nature. He named his hut Gogo-an. Gogo was a term meaning half the amount of rice a person would need to survive every day and on means hermitage. He was friends with the country farmers. He often played with the village children and he kept brightly colored cloth balls to play games with them in the sleeves of his black patched monk robes. One time he was playing hide and seek with them and decided to hide in an outhouse. But the children figured out that he was in there and they decided to play a joke on him by running away. The next morning, someone came out to use the bathroom and found him still waiting there. What are you doing here, Ryokan? They asked. Shh, be quiet, please, he whispered, or else the children will find me. Ryokan survived by begging. So one of the most important things he owned among his very few belongings was his begging bowl. Here are three haiku he wrote about the begging bowl. Picking violets by the side of the road, I forgot my begging bowl. How sad you must be, my poor little bowl. And then, I forgot my bowl again. Please, nobody pick it up, my lonely little bowl. And finally, in my bowl, violets and dandelions are mixed together with the Buddhas of the three worlds. A couple of weeks ago, Dokoro Osho mentioned habituation. Through habituation, we can sometimes find ourselves moving through the world and experiencing it and responding to it in a preformed way without even realizing it. My sense is that this is very normal. In fact, our brains have chemicals that exist specifically to allow us to attenuate in other words, to lessen the strength of our response to things as they become more familiar. But for Ryokan, somehow, he seems to have mostly experienced everything as if it were the very first time. It is as if he arrives and is always surprised at what he finds, asking, what's happening? And then his reactions emerge. Here's another story about him from the book One Robe, One Bowl by John Stevens. One spring afternoon, Ryokan noticed three bamboo shoots were growing under his veranda. 
Bamboo grows rapidly, and soon the shoots were pressing against the bottom of the veranda. Ryokan was quite anxious, for he did not like anything to suffer, even plants. He cut three holes in the floor and then told the bamboo shoots not to worry. He would cut a hole in the roof if necessary. He was happy once again. Violets are such lovely small flowers, but they're low to the ground, really easy to overlook. They are common and ordinary. They are there reliably the same time every year. It's easy to just take them for granted. And dandelions are even less appreciated, just weeds maybe. Bamboo is also quite ordinary in Japan. And even here, it can become an invasive plant. But to Ryokan, they were all astonishing, over and over and over again. There's a song called Memories, which has a lyric that struck me. It goes, my memories came back in the form of someone else. I think this description is intriguing. How often do we just see what we expect and then brush it off? Living in memories instead of seeing, experiencing as if something or someone were completely new. So in day-to-day -day life, how do we respond? I have a cookbook that says, Every grain of rice is a Buddha. And if you cook rice, you know what it is to pour it into containers, measure cups of it out for cooking. These little grains, they just want to bounce out all over the place. What if each individual grain was the most important thing? Attention shifts and gratitude and love can arise. Each one of them, however small, the very most important thing. We can lift and dip the measuring cup with tenderness. We can pour the rice so that none is wasted. The feeling of our hand in the cool water, the grains in our fingers as we wash the rice. We can feel the weight of the bowl as we add just the right amount of water for cooking and taste the cooked rice, savoring it, sharing it with others. So I'm getting ready to stop, but please allow me to offer a poem. The poem is about a small lemon tree we are growing in a pot, which sometimes blooms and every now and then actually makes a real lemon. Just one lemon, born from all of spring's sweet blooms, ripens, sheltered from the falling leaves of another passing year. Thank you very much. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate.
Thank you for listening.